Hello and welcome to I Really Wish You Hadn't. This is a podcast about people and businesses that have made horrible mistakes, have fallen apart at the seams, or have just been generally awful since their inception. They're the kind of people and businesses that make you think, man, I really wish you hadn't. and welcome back to I Really Wish You Hadn't. I'm Michael Bentley, and I'm here with Cayman McMahon. Hey! And as always, our producer, Colin Moore. Howdy. But here's what's interesting, is we're all in the same room this time. Very rare. This is a live recording of I Really Wish You Hadn't, and it's streaming right now on twitch.tv slash msoinfinite. That's true. Right, because everyone that listens to podcasts thinks, man, I really wish I could watch this as well. Really, uh, it's it's some groundbreaking stuff. It's you can, it's awful. It's you, really you don't bad. want to see how no this podcast is made. Podcast. If you're on our stream watching us right now, I would say maybe reconsider some things, but stay here and keep watching. We appreciate. We're it. happy with that, but like, man, buddy. All right. Well, this week we're continuing our series on Cuba, and I've listened to the last episode, and I realized that we probably should define a few terms moving forward that we were just kind of throwing around. Um, for those of you that haven't read the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, get fucking educated. Educate yourself. <laughs> you might have been confused by the terms bourgeoisie and proletariat that Cayman was throwing around last week, like this was a USSR book club. <laughs> I like that. I wish it was. <laughs> That's our next podcast. Okay, um, the bourgeoisie are the people who own the means of production such as a factory or a plot of land. Jeff Bezos. Yeah. The bourgeoisie are generally seen as high-class, selfish people. The proletariat are the working men and women who create the wealth that gets hoarded by the bourgeoisie. And the only path to breaking the chains of wealth inequality is for the proletariat to rise up and seize the means of production. Only then will the wealth that a person creates truly be theirs. So congratulations, you are now educated enough to tell all your friends that capitalism is built on lies because money isn't real. It's so metal. It's the most metal form of government. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to find that. Cayman, did you have anything you wanted to say before we get started? Oh, uh, nope. Okay. <laughs> cool. All right. Yeah. So, as a recap, when we last left off, a man named Ful... Fulgencio or is it Fulgencio? Fulgencio. Okay. I think it's like a G. A man Fulgencio. Named, a man named Fulgencio. Fulgencio? Fulgencio Batista. Fulgencio. G I don't know. A man <laughs> no, I'm pulling that out of my ass. That's what I boy, that's how I would pronounce it. A man named Fulgencio Batista yeah. is in power in Cuba. He recently took power by rolling up to the capital in an armored tank. And he is working with the United States' interests in mind. And he is widely despised by many Cubans, including our man Fidel Castro. There are wonder why they always say like an armored tank. Because I've never seen an unarmored tank. It's a good point. But they always call it an armored tank. Food for thought, not important. It's a good point. Yeah. So anyway, Castro at this time is an outspoken student activist turned lawyer for the people turned revolutionary leader. And Castro has just staged an assault on a Cuban military barracks and has been imprisoned for it. And where we left off, he's just been released by Batista, who believed that Castro was no longer a threat. 
And before we get into new information, I just want to explain that this wasn't just a strong arm move by Batista to say like, oh, nobody can stop me. Like this man's not a threat. It was also kind of seen as this olive branch to his critics that he was willing to put the past behind them and move on. Like he was willing to work with people. Problem is, it doesn't really take back the fact that you're an authoritarian who took office using the military. Yeah. And it the, doesn't, you can't really roll back that fact. Yeah, you can't be like, ah, oh, let's let bygones be bygones. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm still, you know I'm still going to be a dictator, but let's let bygones be bygones. You, you attack my military barracks. I took control of the country. <laughs> We're even, all right? So, see, I let, I let this beardy dude out of prison. So, yeah, I guess we're going to see how that works out for Batista. But as we previously mentioned, never let your political rivals out of prison. It's not going to work. Like, <laughs> it's not, not going to work out. It's not good advice. So, after getting out of prison, Castro kind of becomes a minor celebrity. Um, he would do radio interviews and speak in public about Batista and how things needed to change. And this is in addition to the popularity that he already kind of had going into it. Because remember, when they were still doing all the, like, uh, protests at the University of Havana when he was still in Havana. Why am I saying Havana? I don't know. It was I, weird. I say a lot. Um, when he was still in school, he was, like, giving speeches. And he'd been in the, like, national newspaper a few times. So, like, he, he's, he's just working his way up the popularity ladder. Yeah. And he was also a very popular guy with the ladies. He actually starts having uh, sexual relations with two of his followers, and he sires a bastard child with each of them. So, uh, you know who probably wasn't good with the ladies? I don't know this for a fact. Raul. Raul Castro? Have you looked him up? No. He looks like a gaunt Shia LaBeouf. You don't think Shia LaBeouf's sexy? Shia LaBeouf's sexy. A gaunt Shia LaBeouf. He looks like Shia LaBeouf, like, right after Even Stevens ended, except for he's, like, two foot taller. It's not a good look. Nah. Look at Raul. And then after that, he's he's that same look, but then he grows a weird little mustache. He does look like Shia LaBeouf. Let's does he? Him. He looks like Shia LaBeouf, dude. Dude, he totally looks like Shia LaBeouf. If there was a if there was a biopic, like biopic. the major bio, 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 I know biopic. Biopic. But I think it's biopic. It's it? biopic. Biopic. No. no. It's not a like a eye surgery. <laughs> If there was a movie made about the Cuban Revolution, Major Dunn, Ma Major Dunn, Holly Hollywood Big Movie. Are you okay? <laughs> if there was Major Dunn, Hollywood Big Movie, Are Shia LaBeouf would play Raul. <laughs> oh, oh, it's early. Okay, can we talk about Cuba? Yeah, we can talk about Cuba. All right. Dunn talked about Cuba with you all week. So, all the while, Castro is continuing to grow his revolutionary group known as the 26th of July Movement, which, as we've previously mentioned, is the day that they attack that military barracks. So, Castro at this time has been assimilating smaller revolutionary groups into his movement. And one of these groups was led by a man named Frank Pius, who became one of Castro's closest allies. Then, after a series of bombings, Batista starts going heavy, cracking down on dissent. And this prompts Fidel to decide that it's probably best that he gets out of Cuba. Fidel sends a letter to the media telling them, quote, I am leaving Cuba because all doors of peaceful struggle have been closed to me. Six weeks after being released from prison, I'm convinced more than ever of the dictatorship's intention. Masked in many ways to remain in power for 20 years, ruling as now by the use of terror and crime and ignoring the patience of the Cuban people, which has its limits. 
As a follower of Marti, I believe the hour has come to take our rights and not beg for them, to fight instead of pleading for them, end quote. I mean, this is basically setting the stage for what we're going to come to see is the Cuban Revolution. Um, so with that, Fidel, his brother Raul, and a handful of supporters fled to Mexico to train up forces to take power from Batista. And in his absence, Castro appointed Frank Pius, who I mentioned previously, to lead the 26th of July movement in his absence. Now, I think something that is like substantial here is like one he's saying there's literally nothing i can do peaceful anymore like to try and change this government and i like now essentially what he's saying is all the peaceful avenues have failed now we're gonna have to do something violent and i feel like that's for your how to run a country as a dictator one-on-one 101 um that's the point where either you off that person or you start listening to him. Well, and I also love that he's like, well, we tried peace. You remember when we attacked that military outpost? That was the peaceful option. Oh, yeah. You remember true. when we shot up that military outpost? Um, <laughs> I just got out of prison for violence. <laughs> we tried it peacefully. Um, but those were some literate prisoners. They love to read. Yeah. Castro taught them. Neato. <laughs> like here, here have a communist manifesto <laughs> you know keep in mind at this point he is reading this literature um but as no one really thinks that he's communist at this point and honestly it's kind of sketchy if he is or isn't communist like he knows the material but he hasn't he hasn't really ever stated publicly or even to a lot of the people that he was going through this revolution with that he was communist or he was socialist. This was all about bringing down Batista and bringing back democracy to Cuba. Funny you mention that now, because now is the time that we have to mention someone who definitely was a communist and who loved communist literature. Oh, this is this is probably going to be one of your favorite characters. Yes, definitely one of mine. Yeah. Actually, might be my favorite character. He gets bad later, but that's everybody in the story. Yeah. For this episode, he's really cool. Yeah. Um, And that's... Che Guevara. Now, if you don't know who Che Guevara is, he's the dude from the t-shirts the douchebags wear. <laughs> Just Google Che Guevara t-shirt if you don't know what I'm talking about. I promise you've seen it, even if you don't think you have. Yeah. You have. Or posters. It's, yeah, seen it's it somewhere. On, yeah, you've seen it. So, Che Guevara was born in Argentina and grew up fairly well off, middle class for Argentina. Che grew up reading a lot of books, many of which were by leftist icons like Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. While studying to be a physician, Guevara decided that Argentina was too small to hold him, and so he hopped on a motorcycle and decided to see all of what South America had to offer. This sounds really badass, but what kind of ruins the image is that he was riding on the back of his friend's motorcycle. So... Hey, there's nothing wrong with a little pole-to-hole road trip. (laughs) That's fine. Me and the boys. And you know, like, this is... Also, what year is this? What year are we in? Late 50s, mid 50s? 50s, yeah, I would say. Like, they're probably on, like, a relatively low-powered motorcycle at that point. So Because I, there weren't a lot of high-powered motorcycles. So and it's South like, America. They're probably going, like, 30 miles an hour tops with two people. Yeah, I looked up the motorcycle they were on. It's actually kind of neat looking. Like, I, at one point, I thought it was, like, a bicycle with a motor on it. Now I have to see. I was actually wrong about that. Now I have to see. Oh no, they're on like a yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty I, nice. ex- I expected something smaller. Okay, so Che and his companion went across South America to sites like Machu Picchu and Lake Booby Poop. 
I'm sorry, that's a typo in my notes. I meant to say Lake Titicaca. Nice. <laughs> Woo! Got him again. Got it. Got you, South America. <laughs> well, when they weren't sightseeing, they were finding ways to help in the communities that they found themselves in. For instance, they came across a colony of lepers in Peru, and they spent two weeks there treating the ill. And in return for his help, the lepers threw Che a birthday party. Well, that's nice. I, yeah, I guess. And, and this is what's weird, is it almost feels like a sitcom, because the next stop they did, they came across a soccer team in Colombia, and I have to assume they weren't very good because they spent nine days there coaching the soccer team. Like, I don't know how that happens, or just like, hey... You guys need a coach? We're going to coach you. Like, we're just going to go on a tour and help people. In yeah. In, like, every facet of life somehow. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But all in all, the pair traveled 8,000 miles and saw the worst of wealth inequality and social injustice that South America had to offer. This led Che Guevara to a defining belief that Latin America needed to unite against those that divided them. And one of the big dividers in Che's mind was the United States. Upon his return to Argentina, Che completed his medical degree, but ultimately Che decided that his real calling wasn't to heal, it was to fight. And I swear I'm not making this up. This sounds like the most cliche thing in the world, but Che Guevara swore on a photograph of communist icon Joseph Stalin that he would not rest until the octopuses of capitalism were vanquished. Okay, Che's a edgelord yeah he's an edgelord he like, literally calm his... down buddy <laughs> a, a picture of joseph stalin which of all the communist icons stalin is the worst one yeah except for like maybe like mao zedong but i would say stalin yeah but maybe at this time nobody knew that like maybe there were other good ones to pick from i guess Lennon. i don't know I guess Lenin was... Oh, but they're all dead, because Stalin killed... (laughs) I'm kidding. Stalin didn't kill Lenin. We'll find out more in our Stalin episode. Yeah. So anyway, Che Guevara's got a lot of octopuses of capitalism to vanquish. That's octopi. Okay. Is it? I think it's octopuses. It's octopi. He's right. So anyway, he decides to start with getting involved in a revolution that was taking place in Guatemala. And I would love to talk in depth about this, but we seriously just do not have time. It has a lot to do with a company called United Fruit, which is deeply entwined with this entire story. Yes. I've left out a lot of it. I would maybe like to revisit it after we get way past Cuba, just do a United Fruit episode. Um, So anyway, I'm getting yada yada Guatemala. Some of the biggest colonizers of the past 100 years are like United Fruit Company, the Dole Company, like essentially just people that harvest fruits yeah and like they've just taken over like huge swaths of south america yeah for south america the term banana republic is not a cool place to get shirts no (laughs) no it's it's really bad it's really really bad and we will cover it at some point but we're not going to do it right now so after guatemala che decided to head to mexico where he was going to work as a medical researcher at this point he's quite literally a rebel without a cause but that doesn't mean that he's not looking for one well, lucky for Che, a cause would find him. Because, Cayman, you remember who else is in Mexico? That's right. The Castros are in Mexico. Oh, yeah, the for... Castros. <laughs> for second, you seriously like... didn't know? I don't... I'm being a dick. I'm a little hungover. Yes. The Castros, <laughs> the Castros are in Mexico. Yes. Yes, Michael. I remember it's the Castros. The Castros are in Mexico. Ah. 
Uh. And they're they're looking for essentially Che Guevara. Like he's the perfect guy for them. Yeah. It's a match made in heaven. So in Mexico, the group learned the skills they would need to fight a guerrilla style campaign against Batista's regime. Did we just become best friends? Seriously. Like, I mean, they're they're exactly what each other needs right now. Yeah. So now they've got the men, they've got the skills, and what they really need now is weapons. So the the Castros find a weapons dealer who can provide their group with rifles, as well as transport in the form of a rundown yacht called the Grandma. Nice. The 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 greatest name for a warship. Was it in Spanish? No, it's Grandma. It's English. Like it's well, Spanish. I do they. I is guess the yeah. Like a, a for grandma? Grandma? It's like. I don't know what it is. I think is like that... a ba- abuelo's grandma. So it's not the abuelo. No, it's it's the grandma. grandma. The grandma. In English. Yep. Okay. And fun fact, you can still see the grandma. It's in a museum in Cuba. Now that I've said that and it's going to be on the record, I know that my Spanish is going to be wrong. But that's fine. Continue. So the issue is they want to buy these rifles. They want to buy the grandma. But the Castros need money because capitalism. So Fidel Castro knows one person with the funds and a shared hatred of Batista that can get this done for him. And that man is Carlos Prio, who was the president of Cuba that Batista forced out by rolling up to his office in a tank. Yeah, and he'll come up a few times. He uh, he was He's a pretty big player in the Cuban Revolution, but always behind the scenes. Yeah, and, and Castro really didn't like Carlos Prio. He did not want to ask him for the money, but at this point it was just an act of desperation. He had nowhere else to turn. The issue is Carlos Prio fled to America after Batista took power. And Castro can't exactly just walk into America because, again, America is in good with Batista. And if they got a hold of Castro, they would send him to Batista. So Castro does what any normal person would do. And he swims the length of the Rio Grande to enter Texas illegally. And there he meets Prio and the former president of Cuba gives Castro $100,000 to get his revolution going. And I get, I don't, here's what I don't understand is, okay, he now has $100,000, which I have to imagine is in cash. I don't know how else he could have given so it to him. a lot of money. Does he have to swim back? Yes, and he has to swim back across the Rio Grande. How, how, how I, okay, I know that the Rio Grande it's grand. sounds big, but what is, what is that in, in meters? Is it Grande? Is it Rio Grande? It's Rio Grande. Okay. Well, no. Is it Grande? Uh, we we need a Spanish person on this podcast. Yeah, seriously. In, in English, it's Rio Grande. Okay. In Spanish, it would be... That's if fine. you listen to the podcast and you speak Spanish... Send us an email telling us how wrong we are. You can apply for the job. Actually, we'll just fire Michael and hire you. Yeah. We don't... We pay nothing. So when he swims there, it's the Rio Grande. When he swims back, it's the Rio Grande. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good. Okay. So anyway, I guess he straps $100,000 to himself and swims across a literal river yeah it's a river okay so he swims across a giant river with a hundred thousand dollars how giant it is i'm sure there's parts where it's skinnier and it's not still you've got a hundred thousand dollars on you just throw in a duffel bag anyway you you ever wash like a dollar yeah it's fine it's fine okay so he's got a hundred thousand dollars that's enough to get his that's enough to get his guns that's enough to get the grandma castro is now ready to set sail for cuba you know here's the thing with prio is he Comes up multiple times where he's like kind of contributing to take Batista out of power. Is the only thing that he wants revenge or is he like, okay, Castro, you can go like overthrow him. Here's money. Um, and then I get to come back. And be I think that was part of the plan for, for Prio at least. But Castro was wise to it. And he that's why he didn't want to accept the money. Because yeah. he didn't want Prio involved. 
But the thing is, like I said, there's these pockets of revolution happening and they're all kind of trading with each other. But they've all, I, I have to believe, and I, I can't prove this, but I, I have to believe all of them had power in mind, you know? Yeah. So each one of them is kind of jockeying for, it's like, it's like playing risk, right? Like you want to make alliances, but you don't want your alliances to get too powerful. Now, there's still a problem. The grandma is designed for roughly 10 to 12 people. <laughs> Castro has 80. So needless to say, this trip was an absolute nightmare. The, the boat was understandably crowded due to lack of space. Right. So there wasn't enough room to put enough food to feed 80 people on it, especially because the grandma wasn't designed to travel from Mexico to Cuba. So they had to stock the ship where what little space they had was almost entirely fuel to get them there. And like guns and whatnot. Yeah, and guns. Yeah, all the supplies and food was kind of the last thing to go on. Um, it's like the little engine that could. That's impressive. Also, because it was so packed and they're going across the ocean, it was rocking really bad. People got seasick, were throwing up. They're shoulder to shoulder. It's hot. One dude fell overboard. So all these things and, you know, the fact that they're so weighted down, the, the whole trip was supposed to take five days. Right. Um, but because of all these complications, they were delayed by two days, making the whole trip seven days. Mm. This is very, very bad because they had planned in advance to arrive on a specific day when Frank Pius, the guy who's running the July 26th movement, um, he was going to start uprisings in various towns across Cuba. They were going to come in provide like they were essentially the uh, the cavalry. They were going to come in and basically clean up. But because they're delayed, the grandma gets a news broadcast on the fifth day that announces that the uprisings did happen, led by Pius, but those all ended with a series of arrests and the Cuban military was now on high alert because they know something's up. They know something's happening. But eventually, on the seventh day, the group finally makes it to their intended destination. But they kind of just crash land and they don't actually make it to shore. They end up on a sandbar and they have to kind of wade their way up to um, the island. And this is after not eating for seven days. This is, yeah, this is after not eating for seven days. Jeez. So to give you an idea of how bad it was, let's hear from our good friend Che Guevara. Quote, we reached solid ground, lost, stumbling like so many shadows or ghosts marching in response to some obscure psychic impulse. We had been through seven days of constant hunger and sickness during the sea crossing, topped by three still more terrible days on land, end quote. So as Che just rudely spoiled for you, things are not going to get better now that they're on land. As previously mentioned, the attacks by Frank Pius put Batista and the Cuban military on high alert. And as such, when the men began essentially washing up on shore, the Cuban military was ready for them. And as such, the landing party was quickly assaulted by helicopters and airplanes that easily mowed down roughly 75% of the invading force. What? So, yeah. So there's 80 people landing. 60 of them die by just constant air um, like assaults. bombardment. Yeah. But wait, where would Cuba... Get helicopters and planes. Huh. It's almost like maybe the United States gave them that equipment. Sons of bitches. <sighs> <sighs> However, the military couldn't be sure what who who of the 75 people they actually killed. Um, but this didn't stop Batista from declaring Fidel Castro dead. 
In reality, though, Fidel, Raul, Che, and 17 other comrades made it through the onslaught and into the Sierra Maestra Mountains to regroup and plan their next move. And that's what's crazy to me, is that all of the big players survived. Like, yeah. and, and that's probably why they're big players. Like, at this point, if, if Che Guevara died, nobody would know his name. But the fact that, like, Fidel and Raul both make it is crazy. Well, you're not going to shoot Sile Bob. <laughs> He's just so lovable. He's America's sweetheart. <laughs> is he? That was Zach Efron. Sure. So, the next part of our story plays out kind of like a Far Cry game, if you've ever played those. Because basically, the 20 remaining members of the team begin raiding local military outposts to get weapons and equipment. Because, essentially, when the grandma crash-landed, you've got to get rid of your rifles and stuff, because they're literally up to their, like, heads in water, and, like, they were so, so weighted down, they just was, had to throw stuff. That was literally a thousand dollar, or, like, they got... A hundred thousand dollar trip to Cuba and nothing else. They didn't get to keep the boat. They didn't get to keep the weapons, and sixty other men died. Yeah, and they didn't even go in style. Like it was the worst seven day. It was the worst seven day cruise any of them had ever been on. And there's the fact that seventy five percent of their equipment died along with the men. And on that front, Castro soon began recruiting new members to join his outfit, and numbers soon grew to over two hundred. As Castro was regaining his footing and growing his influence, he knew that he needed to make a statement especially seeing as the world thought he was dead at this point. But the Cuban press was being highly censored by the Batista administration, so Castro reached out to the largest United States newspaper, the New York Times, and invited a reporter named Herbert Matthews to come interview him. Uh, Before we get much further, so their force had been taken down to like 20 people, right? Yes. And then he just gets it back up to 200, like... Not a, not immediately, but over time. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's, he's starting to grow I mean, that up. just has to show how much people hate Batista. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, this is the rural part of Cuba. So Cuba, basically, as you move further west, it gets more affluent. He's coming in on the east side of Cuba. Right. So this is where the farmland, this is the mountain area. Um, and these are people who have basically been forgotten, left behind. These are the people who really don't like the administration because they're not getting anything from it. Right. So, And it's also people who kind of want an adventure, you know? So I feel like it's easier to get those people behind them. And I think it's important to point out, like, the big lore, I guess, one of the being in the east side of Cuba, because I kind of wish we could show you guys a map, and maybe it would be helpful to look up a map, because we're going to talk about a a lot of geological locations in Cuba. Um, but the east side of Cuba, it's real foresty. It's real mountainy. Like Michael said, it's real rural. So it's like the perfect place to hide out for your rebel group. Right. Yeah. So jot that one down if you're playing anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rural areas. Like I said, he's invited this New York Times reporter out. But again, just like Fidel had to sneak into America... Matthews couldn't just walk into Cuba. So he was essentially smuggled in and Matthews would interview Castro and his write-up would come to be a defining moment in the Cuban Revolution. See, I heard that a press pass gets you everywhere. No, it's a it's a sideline pass. Sideline. If you're allowed pass, on the field, right. you're allowed anywhere. Still, I would think that that's weird. Why couldn't... So Matthews couldn't just go into... Where are they going to say... Why are you here? I would like to go to the rural part of Cuba, please. News. 
I'm here to report on the farmlands of Cuba. Well, don't tell him. You don't have to tell him exactly where you're going, right? So he lives in like, a. He's going to a dictator state. Hey, he's a journalist. Well, he already knows how to, to lie, lie anyway. Like follow you. They might. Like, they okay. probably would. Okay. They definitely Not would. Not everybody that enters the country, sure. No, but a New York Times reporter, they would say follow him. They were following Castro when they let him out of prison. They, it's a surveillance state. Okay. okay. I, uh, I, I, I said something really saucy, and I think both of you guys missed it. Say it again. He said he already knows how to lie. He is a journalist. That was. I like. It. He's part of the lamestream media. Not actually something I, I believe, Hashtag but it was fake it was news. spicy, and I, I wanted recognition. Okay, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to say that the press lie a lot, but they get stuff wrong pretty often. Well, I'll tell you what they didn't get wrong: the fact that Castro was alive. Basically, this was the first that the world found out that Castro didn't die, um, and this was proven by a photograph that Matthews took with Castro as well as the New York Times publishing Castro's signature. Like, he was like, no, you've got you've to get my signature in there so everybody knows that it's really me, which it was weird to me. See, but, I always double verify people's signatures when I see them. I right. have to look them up in the, in the signature database right. to make sure it's legit. Very important. <laughs> <laughs> so Matthews basically told the world that he had found a leader in Castro hiding in the mountains of Cuba. He said that Castro was courageous, educated, and dedicated to liberating Cuba from tyranny. Basically, Matthews was a huge Castro fanboy. I would say that all three of those things, even looking back now, it would be hard to refute any of those things. He was very obviously intelligent. He was very obviously courageous. Like, you don't start a revolution if you ain't got some courage. And he was dedicated to liberating Cuba. It just... He wanted to liberate it in his way. Right. As we'll come to find exactly. out. So all those things I would say are true. I would say those things about Castro now, and I'm not a Castro fanboy. Although I get Matthews. I tell you who was a Castro fanboy is Matthews. Yeah, Matthews. He like loved it. Castro. Even after, like, Castro starts to turn sour, Matthews defends Castro to his deathbed. Um, yeah. But, and it's crazy, he almost didn't get Matthews. They wanted to send a woman but Castro was like, you can't send a woman here. <laughs> it's not going to turn out well. Oh. Yeah, I know, which is like, I don't know what that's all about. But, well, I, I kind of know what that's all about. But I I, I really wish that uh, he hadn't. Or, like, yeah. that, that situation hadn't, you know? Yeah. Um, but if he hadn't got Matthews, I don't know that it would have been as as in his favor as it, as it would have been. Oh, that's so, gross. now you may be wondering why the news of Castro's basically return didn't result in Batista just sending his army into the Sierra Maestra to finish the job. Well, according to author Carlos Alberto Mon... Mon well, according to author Carlos Alberto Montaner... I'm definitely saying that wrong. Montaner? Maybe? Sure, that sounds more Spanish. Montaner. <laughs> Better than Montaner. 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 <laughs> <laughs> like a deep South saying Montana right there. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry to every Spanish-speaking person ever. And all the people from Montana. What and everyone word. from Montana. We're deeply sorry. <laughs> so sorry. I think I talked about Montana in the last episode, too. All right, we'll anyway. Learn. We'll learn. Uh, so, quote. This is from Carlos Alberto Montana. Um, quote. Batista does not finish Fidel out of greed. His is a government of thieves. 
To have this small guerrilla band in the mountains is to his advantage, so that he can order special defense expenditures so that they can steal them. End quote. Yeah, so basically, as we were talking about before, the U.S. is giving them weapons, is giving them money, is giving them everything they need to continue to stay in power. So this is actually good for Batista because he can be like, hey, you know, we've got this huge situation going on. Your journalists are coming over here saying that he's he's powerful. We're going to need more money. We're going to need more airplanes. We're going to need more helicopters. If we had had like 25% more helicopters, we would have wiped them out. But see, this is actually where it comes back to bite Batista, and I'm going to get into this in a little bit. But the U.S. isn't exactly... They, we were sending weapons to a lot of people at this point in time. We send equipment and supplies to the winners. Right. The thing is... See, we play both sides, so we always come out on top. As far as Cuba and South America at this point, the large, and I will get into this further... The large reason that we are sending them weapons is because we're wanting to create a wall of defense mm -hmm. in case USSR attacks or we have war with anyone. We want all of the Americas to be in our pockets, have our weapons to help fight for us. Like all of the Americas, North and South. There's actually two Americas. There's also Central America, Cayman. Don't be uh, exclusionary. Not a continent doesn't count. <laughs> it's a subcontinent. Like India. Not a continent, doesn't count. Subcontinent. India's in Asia. <laughs> Continue on, please, Michael. So, for the average Cuban, Castro was a figurative messiah figure who would return from the dead to bring down Batista. He's like a Gandalf. Nice. <laughs> he is now Castro the White. Beard gang. However, one group wasn't so keen on all the press that Castro was getting. Remember Frank Pius... And the rest of the 26th of July movement have been operating in Cuba this whole time. While he's been in Mexico doing his thing, swimming across the Rio Grande, having his grand adventure, and basically missing his deadline. Um, Screwing Pius over. Yeah. Well, they weren't really happy about Castro getting all this attention for a couple reasons. Number one, this is starting to sound less like a movement of the people and more like a movement of Castro. Two, America's the one doing the reporting which kind of seems counterproductive to their whole message because, you know, America bad. And three, there's still a little peeve that Castro showed up late to the revolution and got a lot of people arrested. And I really debated bringing up this next thing because it seems really fishy. And everything that I found cites the same source and that source cites a book in Spanish. So that kind of, like we've said, Spanish is not our strong suit. So it kind of, left the trail cold. Um, so take this next bit with a grain of salt. So Frank Pius decides that Castro shouldn't be leading this movement by himself. And he sends Castro a message telling him that the 26th of July movement is going to be governed by a six-person committee from here on out, and that Castro's outfit in the mountains will be given one of the six delegates. Pius also told Castro that he could send any suggestions he wanted just to really solidify that you, you don't get to decide things anymore. And so in this one move, Frank Pius cuts Castro's power from 100% to 17%. And then just a few short weeks later, Batista, okay, so, so that part I can't verify. This next part is 100% true. Um, a few short weeks later, Batista's men get tipped off where Frank Pius is located. And what happens next is one of three things. Sources cannot decide, cannot definitively say which one. 
Uh, number one, he was shot on sight and the authorities dumped the body. Number two, he was kidnapped and tortured um, and then killed. And three, some say he was captured, driven to a remote location and shot in the back of the head. Ultimate result being the same. He's dead now. Unfortunately, the problem with this, because it, it, it sounds like Castro bumps off Pius. And Castro definitely did bad things, which is fine. But then there was that's also... That's fine? No, no, that's not fine. That's not fine. He did bad things, and it's fine to acknowledge the bad things that he did. But then there's also anti-Castro propaganda, which is a lot of times bullshit. So it's hard to figure out what are the actual bad things he did, and what are the bad things that are made up. Yeah. Like, it's not that he's a good person. He definitely did do some bad things, but this is one of those ones where, like, did Castro kill Pius? Did Pius actually even try and take power from Castro? Yeah, I can't it's even get all, a definitive yeah. proof that that six-person committee thing is true. So there's a lot of anti-Castro propaganda. There's a lot of pro-Castro propaganda. So sorting out what's truth and what's lies in all of this is where I spent a majority of my research time because it's all kind of shaky. Right. So take this entire take this entire series with a grain of salt because everybody's making stuff up. I mean, even the stuff with Che Guevara, like he rode up from Argentina and left behind his middle-class family and he cured a village of lepers and taught a bunch of children how to play soccer yeah. and then decided to become the savior of well Southern and that's the Central thing is, america i really like, wanted to find out why he went to mexico because there was nothing there for him and some well, sources say he drove up to the top i think he, no he came, he went back to argentina after his motorcycle trip oh yeah he was back there but and then he went to guatemala and then he went back to argentina again but some sources say then he went back to Argentina, and because he was essentially a troublemaker, like, countries... Argentina didn't want him in there, and he was exiled to Mexico. I don't know if that's true, but that's something I read. So, again, there's there's so much... There's just facts out there that may not be facts. Yeah. I don't know. And I'm, I'm, I'm very... I, I try to only say the things that I can find multiple sources for. That's why I say a lot of stuff is, like, citing each other, and, like, there's... The same names keep coming up, and I don't know if these people are, like... Anti-Castro, pro-Castro, or if they're just telling the truth, if they're, if they're just researchers. Anyway, all that to say, Castro may or may, or may not have off Pius. We don't know. Um, I don't think he did. Cayman doesn't think I he did. I don't think he did, yeah. But it's a thing, and I thought it was worth mentioning. But make your own conclusion. Right into the show. If you know, if you were there, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> if you were there, we would love that. Yes. I'm talking to you, Raul. I'm sorry I called you a gaunt child well, off. And, and here's the thing, and, and this may or may not be true. You're but good looking. I found some sources that say... <laughs> Sorry, Raul, if you listen to our podcast. <laughs> I found some sources that say only four people knew of Pius's location, and Castro wasn't one of them. So there's no way that Castro could have done it. Again, that might be a lie. I don't know. To me, they were sending messages back and forth, so somebody had to know where he was. Right. And there's also a bunch of other people that had motive that definitely knew where he was. This could be its own episode, honestly. Let's, let's get past it. Uh, what's important to note is that with Frank Pius's death, um, a powder keg goes off in Cuba because Frank Pius is actually a really popular guy in Cuba. He's been there for a really long time. He was leading movements before he got involved with Castro, and he's been leading movements while Castro has been away. Like, and he's just a public figure that people like. Um, so this resulted in organized marches and a general strike that happened across various places across Cuba. Right now. Obviously, widespread discontent is good for a revolutionary movement, but you know what else is good? 
student political activism. It keeps coming back to the student political activism. And there's this group that comes around called Directorio Revolucionario Estudiantil. Estudiantil? DRE. Guess who's back? Dr. Dre. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to call him DRE from now on. It's another. Uh, call him Dre? Sure, Dre. Okay. <laughs> Dre's way cooler. So Dre, Dre is another student group. Uh, a lot of its members, you know, DEU that I was talking about last time, FEU. It's just, it's another one of those things. They love their three-letter acronym student movements. Right. And I mean, it's, it's the Directory of Students for Revolution. So that's what that means. Um, but they're a little more hardcore than some of these other student groups in the past. So in 1957, they coordinated an attack on Batista's presidential palace. And this was organized by Dre leader Jose Antonio Echevera. Uh, and he died. Solid. He, yeah, killed solid. It. I killed it. Uh, he actually died the day of that incident. Um, so after this happened, the group kind of like splits up. There's still a Dre, a DRE movement. And then there's also this other group that was the main fighting force of that group uh, that runs up into the Escambray Mountains, uh, which is a mountain range more central Cuba. So not like the Sierra Maestra Mountains where uh, Castro and them are. And they start calling themselves the Second National Front of S. Cambrai. Um, we're just going to call them the Second Front from here on out. Uh, they go by that as well. That's kind of how you shorten it. Now, hold that thought, thought. Remember that those are there. Because these are guerrilla fighters holed up in a completely separate mountain range than Castro. Um, remember that. I'm going to talk about U.S. now. So another great thing for a revolutionary movement is an arms embargo to Batista by the U.S. government in 1958. Uh, essentially, and this goes back to what I was talking about before, is the U.S. had been sending weapons to everyone as a part of something called the Inter-American Inter Treaty of Reciprocal Assistance. And this is something that came about under the Truman administration. And the entire thought of this is, we're going to arm all of Central America, South America to the teeth. We're going to make sure that they are a big deterrent from anyone attacking us because we have allies all over. Our entire two-continent, big old, massive land is allies. We're one big ally. Then what happens is they're looking at the situation down in Cuba. They're saying, like, Batista, you got, like, a lot of rebels down there. And Batista's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Send me more weapons so I can fight them. And the U.S. is like, this is not why we were selling you weapons. Like, we weren't selling you weapons so that you could, like, stay in power forever and fight off all your allies, even though we may have to do it for other countries. Um, but it doesn't matter. Like, that's not what we were sending you these weapons for. So we're going to stop sending you the weapons. And Batista goes, shit. Um, because he, he just didn't have that resource. The, he ran out of parts to replace. He ran out of, like repair materials for his planes. So his entire air force was essentially gone. They started running out of ammunition for their guns. So this is a huge blow to them. And hearsay around this event is that after this, the CIA actually started funding the 26th of July movement. Once again, that might be anti-America, anti-Castro propaganda in some way. Um, but this, this I is, wouldn't put it past him, honestly. No, this, <laughs> is, like, this is a popular rumor, and we're going to come back to it. Honestly, I thought it was true. I read it, and I didn't. I didn't fact check it because, again, this isn't my section. But like, I just assumed it was true. 
Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna it's lay part out the course. I'm, I mean, they do it all the time. I'll lay out the evidence for you because it, it might be hearsay, and I think that them them straight up funding the 26th of July movement is a lot is a lot less stable of an idea than they did a roundabout way of supporting them. And let me explain. So there's this guy. His name is Frank Sturgis. Mm-hmm. So Frank Sturgis was an American who in 1942 answered his country's call to arms and joined up with the 1st Marine Raider Battalion. Now, this is spec ops. Uh, This is the special operations like Navy SEALs, all that sort of stuff. Um, So his big thing was guerrilla warfare with the Japanese. So they were holed up in Japan attacking the Japanese from the forest. Hold on. They were in Japan? Yeah. I didn't realize that we had invaded Japan. Well, the... Japanese-controlled territories. I don't know if it's actually Okay, but it's it's in the Pacific. We're talking about islands in the Pacific. Okay, I thought you meant Japan specifically, and I was like, ah, did not know that. I'm not sure if the actual country of Japan, but I I don't know That'd be interesting. I don't know. I I was not under the impression that we invaded Japan, but we might have. Well, you know, proxy fighting on on their property. Yeah, yeah. So, he People can't own property. Oh, that's right. Actually... That's not how the Cuban Revolution worked. They just limited the amount of property. I need to go reread the Communist Manifesto. No, not the Manifesto. I'm talking about the Cubans. You know, Castro is not, he's not a full-blown communist at this point. And even after the revolution, he's not exactly a full-blown communist then. Like, they still have some capitalist things, but we're going to get into that probably more in the next episode than this one. Regardless, that's kind of a tangent. So he was honorably discharged from the Marines after the war ended in 1945. Frank Sturgis, right? Frank Sturgis, because they're like, you know, we don't, we don't really need you anymore. And he was fine with that. Uh, After that, he came back to the U.S. and he tried kind of like working normal, like managerial jobs like that. Um, But then he decided to join up with the Navy Reserves. Um, And you know, Navy Reserves, military reserves, essentially how that works. Here in the U.S. is like you go like a couple weekends a month, you train, uh, you have a job. Just, you know, if they ever need you, then they can deploy you. But he actually leaves that and he's honorably discharged from the Navy um, because this is around the time that we start having the the Berlin blockade. So essentially Berlin blockade, if you don't know, USSR cut off supplies to their portion of Germany because we had like Germany was divided after the war and we had to go and like drop a lot of like food and stuff. Well, after this happens, Sturgis is like, all right, I'm going active. So he joined up with Army Intelligence after that. Uh, so he was Army Intelligence during the Berlin blockade. Berlin blockade didn't last very long. So he was honorably discharged from them in like 1948. So this dude's resume is stacked. Yeah, he's been he's been honorably discharged from the Marines where he was spec ops, honorably discharged from the Navy where he learned to be a pilot, and honorably discharged from Army Intelligence where intelligence is a very important position and more mm-hmm. um so once he was finished up he tried his hand once again at private life for a few years but um, then the life called him back <laughs> well until he bumps into this dude out like he meets him through his boss's wife's friend or something like they like set him up or very organic it's it's like a weird like <laughs> he he like kind of just meets this person supposedly um, that's if you're assuming that he actually just met this person and wasn't introduced by the CIA. So he meets Carlos Prio. And this is the thing is like, there's no way. And Carlos Prio, again, former president of Cuba, gave Castro $100,000. Right. There's no way this is coincidence. But that's what they say. So. <laughs> 
come on. Like, I mean, yeah. I don't want to be like, there, no, there's no you, such thing as coincidence. There is no such thing as coincidence. Listen, just, there's no way these two people met organically. Just because Frank Sturgis was spec ops and very involved in the military and was intelligence and has a lot of friends in the CIA and maybe gets money from him doesn't mean he's a part of the CIA. Here's my thing. Is Michael. Like, maybe, maybe I'll give it to you that maybe they didn't, like they met, they met through something like that. Yeah. Like they had to have. There's no way that it was just like, oh yeah, our neighbors have a uh, piano teacher who knows the <laughs> former president of Cuba. Like, yeah, I, and you know, Frank Sturgis said he wasn't in the CIA. CIA said that Frank Sturgis wasn't in the CIA. Of and, course. <laughs> is the CIA really going to lie to us? Is the CIA even real? <laughs> um. So yeah, a- after his meeting with Creo, uh, because he found out that Creo has been running money to the opposition forces in Cuba, like when he gave Castro a hundred thousand um, dollars. So he asked Sturgis to go down to Cuba and check up on Castro. Because he's like, I gave this guy $100,000. I know he's still down there. I want to see what he's doing. Does he not read the New York Times? Yes. I think he just wants Sturgis to like go check him out. And that's if you're assuming that Prio actually wants Sturgis to go. And this is all either true and kind of strange. And By the way, if you haven't already, put that tinfoil hat on. Like, yeah. it's very important. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, Sturgis... Goes down to Cuba, like you do when you when some dude you just met asks you to go down there and check on him and abandon your life. Um, so he goes down, meets Castro, and he seems to like him. Uh, and then why he, would Castro like him? He's this guy is literally America. Like he's I don't know why would I was saying Sturgis likes Castro. Oh, like Castro does like Sturgis as well. That's they odd. become friends. They seem but like mortal enemies. Yeah, and you know. Sturgis is just some random guy, not a part of the CIA. Um, so then after that, Sturgis goes to the uh, U.S. Embassy and meets up with a CIA informant. Right. As you do. You know, just like a buddy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Someone he's never met before. So uh, after this, Sturgis, you know, has a nice vacation in Cuba. And then on an unrelated note, he offers to train Castro's troops in guerrilla warfare and began supplying them with guns he was running from CIA weapons expert Samuel Cummings. Now, what? Samuel Cummings was a weapons expert for the CIA, um, but that's not... He, he wasn't supplying them with guns because he was a part of the CIA. It was unrelated. But I just... I don't understand the motives here. Anyway, let's... Because we- essentially, okay, I, I cannot say that this is fact because the CIA says it's not fact. Everyone says it's not fact. If I am going to do conspiracy theory, and I think that this is barely a conspiracy theory, is that CIA sent Frank Sturgis to meet Prio. He sent, they sent Frank Sturgis to go meet Castro. Frank Sturgis was working for the CIA. They decided they wanted to support Castro because something was going wrong with Batista. He wasn't liked well enough. Cuba was getting unstable. The U.S. didn't like that. So they start running guns and training them how to be guerrilla fighters. But why? Like, I, I, because at this point, Castro is not communist. Yeah, maybe he wants they thought... democratic, uncorrupt. Yeah, and he, it, the CIA thinks if I can help set up this government, then they're always going to love me. That's true. And we make that same mistake over and over and over again. Look at um, the how Middle Osama East. bin Laden got his yeah. start. Like he was. Check that out in our. Uh, in we'll our, talk uh, about that later. Yeah. But it's... Uh, God, what's it? Contra in our Iranian Contra episode. <laughs> we'll actually get the Contra. Do you really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, this is, that'll be my after notes. Okay. 
So uh, supposedly all the money for this was coming out of Miami, which you do have a lot of Cuban exiles there. So it is possible that Sturgis is just collecting money from the Cuban exiles, buying the weapons, taking them down to Cuba. There's no way. It might have been part of it. You think this was crowdfunded? You think this is a grassroots <laughs> revolution? <laughs> uh, so during this time with Sturgis, the 26th of July movement starts to go from zero to hero. Like they really ramp it up. Um, they start getting a pretty good foothold in the Oriente province, which is kind of that part of the Cuba that they're in. Um, and his troops are bothering the heck out of Batista's forces down there. This is all while the second front of Escambray is holed up in the Escambray Mountains on the other side of Cuba, still kicking up sand for Batista's boys there. So now he's kind of like getting shit on two sides of his island. Batista is. Never fight a two-front war. Yeah. Um... So essentially, Batista has a fight on two fronts. Was there it next episode? Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got to decide who he wants to take out first. Now, see, this is why Japan attacked us, and then we went to Europe. Yeah, because <laughs> we were like, we got to, we're not doing both. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he's he's trying to decide who he wants to take out first because they're both big pains in the ass. Um, but Castro and his boys make that decision real easy when they set up maybe the raddest thing you can set up, a pirate radio station called Radio Rebel. Cool. Now, guess what that stands for? Is it Rebel Radio? Rebel Radio. Yeah. That, that nice. is pretty cool. So all they did was pump out anti-Batista propaganda uh, around you, Cuba. I was hoping you were going to say they only played CCR. <laughs> oh, I, was, I was thinking uh, just uh, Rebel Yell on repeat. That's good. That's a good one, too. Yeah. Rebel I think, Radio. I don't think Rebel Yell... Or CCR were around at this no, point in time. But, but uh, anyways, I they probably played some music sometimes. But you know what really upsets me? What? Um, so you always hear Fortunate Son on like Vietnam movies. Yeah. Fortunate Son actually wasn't that popular. The the top song that year was Sugar Sugar by um bum, 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 bum. Oh, uh, sugar, sugar. sugar. Yeah. yeah. So that, did you know that song is by the fictional character of Archie, like from the comics? That's who sings that song in quotes. I don't want to go down this tangent anymore. Okay. <laughs> I, I, that's going to start a whole other thing, and we ain't got time. We really don't. Uh, so Rebel Radio is pumping out anti-Batista propaganda. And, you know, this, Cuba's not that big of an island. They have a huge range with this radio station because they took a high-powered radio station. So it's not like, like Batista can just go flip it off. Like, you can't take radio waves out of the air, really. I mean, you kind of can't. That's a whole other thing. We're not going to get into that. So, Batista looked up from what I would imagine was his cocaine and whores, because I just imagine him, imagine him as like a hardcore playboy at this time. Um, He's literally just uh, Tony Montana. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking McAfee. I imagine if you're a dictator and you're in power, then you're just, and there were reports that people were like, oh, Cuba's struggling and Batista's just sleeping with prostitutes and doing drugs and throwing wild parties. Is that true? That might be propaganda as well. But, you know, that's how I'm going to imagine it. Did you see the way he, he, I mean, it's crazy how dictators all gravitate towards the same look. The military look? Yeah, the like, the very pressed yeah. and proper, like, military look. If I was a dictator, I feel like I would go more like. You would look exactly like you look right now. Exactly. Hawaiian shirt. Shirt. Short. Shorts. <laughs> sandals. Gaddafi <laughs> wore sunglasses and like a dashiki. He was pretty relaxed. For dictator. Well, I mean, relaxed looking. 
I guess so. I mean, but okay, Batista has a reason though. Like he's from the military. Like, yeah, he is a that's military. How, he's a military dictator. That is, that's how he holds his power. Is so I, he he gets a pass. Yeah, so he gets a pass. Regardless, he he looks up from his cocaine horse long enough to tell his army to go to the Sierra Maestra mountain range and wipe out Castro's band of married gentlemen and gentle ladies. I don't know if this is true or if this is false. It seems like there might have been some women that were actually were. joined up with Definitely Castro's were. forces. Yeah, okay. some of his closest allies were women. Yeah, it's actually, so, they were a very inclusive group. Yeah, which is what kind of surprised me earlier when he was like, don't send a woman down here, because I started thinking, well, no, they had women fighting for them, so I'm... Yeah, I don't, I don't, and again... I don't really get what that thing was. Who knows? Maybe it was some sort of just prejudice on Castro's part, but I like to think that he's... Women more, can't write newspapers. I think <laughs> that Castro... I'm, it was the 50s. I'm thinking that he's more progressive than that. Anyways, so the main man in command for Batista is General... Lucio Cantillo, and he takes 12,000 troops, with a lot of those being new recruits, somewhere around 7,000 being new recruits, and sets to work on Operation Verano. Uh, Verano in Spanish means summer. I know that one because I wrote it down. Um, <laughs> the first thing General Cantillo does... The only he... thing came and Googled. The rest <laughs> of his notes came from off the dome. Yeah. I'm, I'm smart. I say smart stuffs. Um, the first thing General Cantillo does when he rolls up this year Maestro Mountains is he starts blocking roads to the mountain range to cut off supplies to the rebels. And that probably would have worked, but I guess Cantillo just didn't realize that the poor locals there had come to the side of the rebels and would hide supplies and report the military's positions to Castro. So Castro at this point has all of the intelligence. He knows which roads are blocked off, where the army is, how many they have. They're having food snuck into them. Everyone's covering for him, saying that they're in some places, saying that they're in other places. Like, Castro has the upper hand, which is a pretty good thing because this is 12,000 troops versus Castro's, like, 300 at this point. So he's going to need all the intelligence that he can get. So on June 28th, 1958, General Cantillo makes his first push into the mountains. Now, the rebels, of course, knew that they were coming, and Che Guevara's troops laid out an ambush. Because at this point, it's like you have... Castro, who leads his band of troops, you have Che Guevara, who leads his band of troops, and you have this other guy that I'll talk about a little bit more later, called uh, Cienfuego, who leads a band of troops. And they, they call them um, columns. Columns are essentially just troops that walk single file. So it seems like they're always around like 60 to 100 in, in these columns. Uh, just keep that in mind. Now, since the rebels knew that they were coming, um, Cantillo's armored cars that he had all got ran into a minefield and completely taken out. Uh, and the guerrilla training that the boys have been practicing really paid off at this point uh, because Chase forces lost a few troops. It seems like it was around like three um, and they killed somewhere around 86 army men that were coming uh, before they ran off and the army had to back, back off. Good numbers. Good, good kill count, good ambush. That's how it's supposed to work. So after this, we come to the first air quotations, um, named battle. And that is the Battle of La Plata. Now, Castro wasn't going to let Che have all the fun, um, and he needed to one-up him. So General Cantillo decides to send a few battalions directly to attack the rebels' mountain base by having one battalion go around the mountains and like land behind them amphibiously on the sea, and then after that, having another battalion, while they're busy, like run up the mountains and hit them from both sides, sandwich them in. The first battalion was successful in landing on the beach behind them, and they kind of got into the woods a bit. 
Uh, and then Castro surrounded and pinned him down. Like, immediately. Another reserve of 200 army men ordered to land on another nearby beach to assist, um, but they were held off by machine gun fire. Uh, so they were kind of pinned down as well. They couldn't come help to reinforce uh, their allies. The second battalion, remember the one that was supposed to just run up the mountain and like hit them from the other side? Uh, they essentially got screwed over by a bunch of mines and sniper fire, so they couldn't come there for assistance either. That's the thing that I, I think is crazy, is basically Castro just waits for them to come to him, but he's he's got home field advantage. Like, he's literally created the perfect situation for him. Well, because, here's the thing. I think that this is strategic. No, I, it is. It's no, absolutely strategic. But I think it was strategic letting that first battalion come in. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Because, yeah, I think now you have one battalion completely surrounded and two uh, army of 200 men and another battalion just held at bay. Yeah. And they're just holding them at bay with machine gun fire, sniper fire, mines. They have planned for this. So the commander of that first battalion, it was actually named Battalion 17, the one that is surrounded. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a dude named Major Jose F. Clavedo. Now... After his battalion got good entrenched in, because they dug trenches, they were completely surrounded, they had nothing better to do, Castro would send letters and plead over loudspeakers for Major Quevedo to surrender. Coincidentally, Castro and Quevedo were classmates in law school. That's crazy. So they knew each other. It really just seems like Cuba's not that big of an island. Yeah, but well, <laughs> I mean, the people who were, like, prominent are probably all... Yeah, well, they were all educated. Yeah. And, of course, it's easier to remember these people today. Um... And this is another thing I want to say while I'm, while I'm talking about the loudspeakers. I'm sure Colveda was like, in class, he was like, man, Castro always gets the good grades and he never has to study. He's always out leading rebellions and stuff. Well, here's the thing. Colveda didn't even graduate. Oh. Yeah, well. uh, but not because he didn't want to. He like uh, stopped to like join the military or something like that. Regardless, um, I, something else I want to say about the loudspeakers, because he's, he's pleading with Colveda over these loudspeakers. Uh, this is something that they've been doing with the entire time to screw with uh, Cantillo's forces is they would like sneak up around their camps and put speakers all around in the woods and just start playing music. So it starts coming from the everywhere CCR around. The CCR plays again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so like it would terrify these troops because they know that there's people around them. They know that they're like sneaking around their camp and they don't see they're them. They're getting hazed. Yeah, they're getting hazed. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's honestly terrifying. And they have no idea that Castro only has 300 men. No one at this point in time knows this. So Quevedo and his remaining troops surrender after 10 well, days. They are trenched up for 10 days. I should also say on the point of nobody knows that he only has 300 men. Matthews, the New York Times reporter, never, I don't think he ever gives a definitive number, but his write-up makes it sound like Castro's got numbers behind him. Yeah. So, I mean, from everything that they're hearing, it's, it's not crazy to think. And honestly, that. Castro probably planned for that. He probably had all of his buddies there that day and they were probably like changing hats and beards and we, stuff. But like, like he had more. I don't know if you're joking, but when we get to after notes, I want to talk about that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Awesome. That's just a guess. Maybe I'm right. Well, we'll get there. So yeah, after 10 days, Quevedo and his remaining 240 troops surrender. Now the rebel forces all in all captured about 400 enemy troops. Castro captures 400 enemy troops. Yeah, with 300 men. And for all of this, yeah, they killed 70, captured around 400, and then I think they suffered, or no, I don't think, they suffered three deaths on their side. 
Well, still. <laughs> so, like, those numbers are insane. Hey, and that's 1% of Sturgis, their entire army. Sturgis is fantastic at teaching guerrilla warfare. Yeah. And I'll get into more of that. The CIA is great, at, great yeah. at all that. And, you know, it it would be, it would suck that they lost those three. Um, the captured troops were offered to return, be returned to the Red Cross, and some of them did. Um, but some of them, including Major Quevedo, I decided that they liked Castro and joined up with his rebels. That's what's crazy too is that keeps happening in the story. Is like because people hate Batista. Well, yeah, but it's just like but they fight for him until they're like, oh no! Like so many instances, including I'm gonna say, this is my own personal opinion, but the U.S. government is like, oh, let's get on the winning side. <laughs> let's switch sides real quick well, because and here's, here's, they're gonna win this one. Here's my thing with this. Quevedo, he was in Havana Law School, obviously not a dumb guy. He and his army is sent there to, like, wipe out this small rebellion. Maybe he was there for copyright law, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> copyright law is a very fascinating part of the law. I wouldn't say that, but I would say it probably is complicated. Um, so, Quevedo sees, once they're captured, that Castro doesn't have nearly as many men as he thought they might have. He took out 70 of his men. He captured 400 troops. He already hates Batista. And he goes, you're, you're going to win this. Like, yeah. You can win this. I'm joining you. And that's why all the other troops that they captured, not all of them, but a lot of them also joined up with Castro as well because they're like, yeah, this is actually going to be successful. Now we're getting to the second battle of Operation Verano, and that is the Battle of Los Mercedes. Now, after the humiliating defeat at the Battle of La Plata, uh, General Cantillo begins retreating out of the Sierra Maestro. Now, Castro sent a group of men to attack the retreat, but wait, it's a trap. Uh, Cantillo wasn't actually retreating at all. Now, Cantillo had disguised his ambush as a retreat, uh, and the entire column of rebels took this bait. They suffered devastating losses, including 70 men. Remember, they only had 300 at this time. So that's a big loss. Actually, well, they 297. Lost yeah, so... 94, whatever. No, yeah. you said they lost three. Yeah, but Che also lost three. <sighs> See, so this isn't even their whole army here. That's 2%. Yeah, this is a, this is like a column of their army. Mm -hmm. So it's probably like 70, 60. Yeah. Like I said, they lost 70 men. Um, Quintillo turned the tide of the battle here, and it was looking like he was about to steamroll the entire 26th of July movement. Um, but then Castro asked for a ceasefire to negotiate surrender. And Cantillo, to negotiate his surrender or like his Cantillo's surrender. surrender. Oh, Castro's wow. like, I'm gonna surrender. Um, Cantillo accepts for some reason. Uh, so like they're, they're just gonna like try and negotiate his surrender here. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe he just didn't realize how small Castro's forces were. Uh so he like thought that there were more troops than there were mm -hmm. uh that were gonna come like mess him up. Or maybe he was just sympathetic to Castro's cause. There was really no good strategic reason for him to accept this negotiation. Regardless, negotiations lasted six days, but they didn't get anywhere with them. And on the 8th of August, when the ceasefire ended, all of Castro's troops had slipped away back into the mountains, effectively winning against Operation Verano. Crazy. Because they were just gone again. They were just yeah. like that, and they're not going to be found. And like, they got drawn out of the mountains once and ambushed. They're not going to make that mistake twice. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Cantillo just has to run back with his tail tuck between his It's twice. crazy. And that's the thing about guerrilla warfare is like, it's so hard to fight against it. Right. Because they strike when they have the opportunity. Exactly. You, you can't, and you then you can't them. find them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the outcome of Operation Verano, there's four things essentially that happen. 
One, it completely demoralized the Cuban army because they just got beat by a ragtag band of, you know, right. guerrilla fighters up in the mountains. Uh, it showed that Batista couldn't even take down a small rebel group. Sad. Big sad. Big sad. I, my, in my notes, it's all caps. It is. Yeah, it's a big sad. Uh, it gave the 26th of July movement the confidence they needed to actually go on the offensive. Um, and it allowed the rebels to capture a whole buttload of weapons and literally a ton of ammunition. How much is a buttload of weapons? So you remember those 400 troops that they captured? Yeah. You remember all those people that they killed? Yeah. Free weapons. Oh, wow. Free ammunition. Wow. Those armored trucks. Yeah. Like, they got they got a bunch of stuff. Now, the armored trucks are destroyed, but, you know, there's still materials. Hey, you know. So, over the next four months, the rebels take this massive swaths of land, especially, like, down in the Oriente, like, province. Um, and they win battle after battle. Typically, these battles aren't even battles, especially in Oriente. Like, they, they stroll up and people love them. Like, they're heroes. Now, while Fidel Raul and another guy named Juan Almeida Bosque, um, maybe Bosque, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, and I only bring him up because he's the future VP of Cuba, uh, they took land in the more traditional way all around this year, Maestro, like, they start to expand out, like, increase their territory is what I mean by traditional. Um, but three columns of troops led by Che Guevara, uh, Jamie Vega, and Camilo Cienfuegos, who I, I mentioned earlier, they're sent to, like, go towards the capital, go towards Havana, start taking things near Havana, uh, mainly, like, Santiago, uh, that area. Now, Vegas Column was pretty immediately ambushed and destroyed, which that's uh, not great. Uh, Cienfuegos Column, however, of about 60 men, uh, made a lot so, of... Before you continue, you keep saying Cienfuegos. I had to look up what that means in English. It means a hundred fires. His well, last name is a hundred fires. There's also, <laughs> the, the confusing thing is there's also like a town named Cienfuegos. That's like awesome. a city that they capture. That's rad. That is the rad. That's yeah, Cienfuegos' that's the cool last name. name. Yeah, it's, it's so cool. So yeah, his column of 60 men made friends along their way to capture a garrison and defensive stronghold that was named Yahweh-Jay? You're killing it. Um, and they showed up with 450 to 500 troops against the garrison's 250. So they were really good at making friends. There you go. Um, that, so they essentially, like, just doubled their their no, army size. No, they went from 60 to 450 to 500. Well, I know, but when you add that to their army, they've doubled their army's size. <laughs> yeah, and, like, that's happening That's happening with, you know, Castro's yeah. troops as well. Like, they're always yeah. gaining... Yeah, now that they're, like, moving out of the mountains, they're picking people People are getting hype, right. and, you know, people are still listening to Rebel Radio. Right, yeah. CCR is gonna crank it across this nation. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Cienfuegos column is... of 450 to 500 troops is up against this garrison's 250 troops. Now, the leader of the garrison is Alfredo Albon Lee, and he's a Chinese-Cuban, and really, like, I I definitely have some sort of prejudice that I need to get over, because every time that I, like, think about there being, like, Chinese people in Cuba, like, it blows my mind. I'm like, what? That's weird. But no, we're not the only mixing pot. There are plenty of Chinese people in Cuba. There's plenty of black people in Cuba. They're very diverse. There's is is diverse diverse state. That's what I'm saying. Now, eventually, uh, Alfredo Alban Lee has to surrender when his troops just run out of ammunition. Um, but they did put up a good fight about against Cienfuegos' forces, 
Um, Cienfuego also made a homemade flamethrower tank out of a tractor. Or Alfredo Lee was able to take that down. But regardless, uh, Cienfuego does eventually win. This is a huge loss as this huge stronghold is protecting Santa Clara. Which Santa Clara is like very close to Havana. Very kind of serves as a gateway between the east part of Cuba where Castro's forces are and like all the important cities like the Havana, the government cities, that sort of thing. Now, uh, Chase Column, you can't forget about them because they're still doing their thing too, uh, had gone to meet up with those DRE forces and the Southern southern Front, which is holed up in the S. Cambrai Mountains. Now, even though DRE, Dre, and the uh, Second Front um, that are still fighting against um, Batista at this time, one, are very anti-communist. Very, very anti-communist, um, but they also hate Batista. So this is kind of like a common enemy type thing. And, you know, like I'm saying, this also illustrates the point. Castro, Che, the 26th of July movement is not overtly communist at this point. They say some things occasionally that kind of rubs the DRE in the second front the wrong way. Um, but it's not really that big of a deal. Uh, so now they're all joined up together. They had been fighting Batista's troops for months at this point in the Escambria Mountains. Now they start coming down as like a full kind of army type thing. Cienfuegos' capture of the Yagüe garrison, that garrison I was just talking about, really opened the doors for Che and his new friends to lead an assault on Santa Clara. Like I said, it was a midway point in Cuba. Um, Che's forces were met with cheers and support from the peasantry on their way to the assault. Um, and as Che's troops arrived, he split them in two columns. The first column successfully uh, led a siege against both army garrisons in the city, uh, mainly with the support of Molotov cocktails that all the citizens were giving them, which is absolutely awesome. And the second column had trains on their mind. Yeah, and so this was one thing that I really wanted to talk about, and Cayman let me, so thank you, Cayman. Mm -hmm. So Batista was essentially going to send his own party to Santa Clara in the form of Trin Blindado. Which is, I'm probably horrible pronunciation. We're going to stop apologizing for bad Spanish. We've yeah, explained that. Trenblendado. I don't want to do that for the rest of the three or four more episodes that we have about Cuba. But it's Spanish in English. That means armored train. Yeah. Um, and basically, this was Batista's war ender. It's uh, metal. It's, it's armored. It's a train. Oh, it's metal and it's metal. That's a oh, pun in, oh, it is. intended. Um, <laughs> So on the train were 300 soldiers, weapons, and enough supplies to last two months. Um, and basically, this was the last stand of the resistance and would either make or break the revolution. Luckily, though, Che got a heads up that the train was coming. So he went to, and I love this, Santa Clara has a farmer's college. And he basically went in and said, all right, boys, who's got a tractor? And so him and a bunch of farmer frat boys got on their John Deere's and ripped up 30 meters of the tracks. Um, and you know what trains hate? <laughs> is not having tracks. Right. It's a, it's a real it's, it's a real dampener on yeah. the whole train situation. Almost like they, they are bad with friction. Yeah. So what happened next was a lot like that scene in the Polar Express where the train derails. Mm -hmm. Except instead of Tokyo drifting back onto the tracks... The train doesn't do that. Oh, that's probably bad for yeah. the drivers. It's it's really bad. That probably that probably didn't work out well for them. 
So basically, after wrecking into a beautiful mess of train cars, what's left of the train is surrounded by rebels, and Batista's soldiers either get captured, and like we talked about previously, a lot of them just became rebels at that point. Right. On January 1st, 1959, the city officially fell to the rebels, and with the announcement of this news on rebel radio, Batista got on a plane and fled to the Dominican Republic. This was 12 hours after they captured the train. Yeah, Batista just got himself out of Cuba. Yeah, with like an insane amount of money too. Like right. they, it's him, his closest friends, and like he he just literally looted Cuba and went to the Dominican Republic. It's crazy. Right. And um, that's really the last that we're probably going to hear about Batista. He might come up in future episodes. Um, but yeah, so he's gone now. He is no longer important. And uh, really, the thing is, one, this train had a whole lot of army resources on it, which is a dumb idea. Why put so many army resources on just a train and send it to a city that's actively being taken? Regardless, and then also, he does not have the people support. And he does not have even his own army's support. Met with the first sign of resistance, his army's like, yeah, let's go fuck up Batista. Like, you can have a huge army to, like, take down everyone, but if your army hates you, they're not going to be loyal. And Well, and the fact that so many of them were new recruits. Yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not dedicated to an army I just joined. Like, I'm, I'm with whoever just pointed a gun in my face. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but that that being said, Castro's troops were very loyal to Castro, but it's because they loved him. They loved Che. Um, that's something that keeps, because Che does not stop with revolution at Cuba. All of Che's troops always like, he's a very inspiring leader. I don't think Batista was inspiring. I think he gave like one good speech that got him into power the first time. And then like. And then the second time he gave that really inspiring roll up in a tank. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if anyone's going to do that um, <laughs> soon. So, learning of the news, Castro began getting in contact with the military leaders and negotiating surrender of cities to his forces. So he's essentially just like calling up these garrisons and being like, hey, y'all want to surrender or do we have to fight you? And they'd be like, yeah, we'll surrender. Um, this led to Che and Cienfuegos forces being able to arrive at Santiago, which Santiago is right next to Havana. And they just took that with no resistance. Then they kind of took Havana with no resistance. So Castro, over the next seven days, because he has to get to Havana, because that's where the, the capital is, he orchestrates a victory tour across the country called Caravana. In each city, he stopped to give speeches, recruit more troops, so, kiss babies, celebrate. Right. He does the whole we did mission accomplished. Yeah. Tour. We got him, boys. We, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Um, but here's what's crazy to me, and here's why I think that Che Guevara is so, like, he's a guy I want in my corner, is because he's in Havana. He's, he's in the seat. I mean, he could literally just say, I rule Cuba now. No, it's more complicated than that, and this, this is very important. What's happening right now is very important. See, Castro's taking his victory tour across Cuba. Right. Che is not the only person... In Havana, holding down the fort. You also have Dre. You also have the Second Front. You also have Batista's political enemies that have now gotten out of jail and are very popular. And they have. But that's the thing well. is, I don't think all those people are Castro or die. I think of Che because here's the thing: is Che is a war hero, which we'll probably get into in the next episode. Right. But like Che could easily just be like, huh? 
I like this. You, I think I want this. You ready for me to answer your question? Sure. One, I think that Che just isn't that kind of guy. No, two, I, and that's two, why I think that Che is a guy I want in my corner. But two, even if he was, Caravana, this seven-day trip, mm-hmm. is why Castro becomes leader. Okay. I'm excited to hear So, why. every city, like I said, he's stopping to give speeches. People are loving him. He's celebrating. His, he's right. getting more national recognition in all cities. Recruiting more troops to his cause because people are joining up with him as he goes. Signing communist manifestos. Yeah. So <laughs> a British ambassador uh, stated that the crowds that had come to see Castro uh, saw him as a mixture of Jose Marti, Robin Hood, Garibaldi, and Jesus Christ rolled into one. That's this that, that's a shouting review. And I mean, Jose Marti is the original. Like he's the Cuban George Washington. If that Pretty makes much, sense. Yeah. Uh, Garibaldi, if you don't know, he he led some revolutions in Italy. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. But you know, Robin Hood and Jesus Christ. You get the idea. Uh, see, because, you know, Castro had won the war, but the, there was no guarantee that he would be the one to take power, which is why he makes this move. This is yep. a great political move. So uh, the DRE in second front had put up the good fight and a former anti-Batista military leader had taken over Havana's largest garrison after getting Batista's departure. Um, so, like I said, there's a lot of things going on in Havana. Um, but showing up in Havana on January 8th, 1959, with the support of the people and a sizable military force, um, Castro guaranteed that Cuba understood that this was his victory. Castro outmaneuvered his allies in the DRE and the Second Front by calling for a peaceful transition to democracy and appointed the first interim president by the name of Manuel Eurukia. Really? So so Castro didn't... I, I didn't realize that. Castro didn't just immediately say, I'm I'm the man now, dog. Uh, no, actually, uh, Castro, I don't think, was ever president. Really? Uh, see, he appointed himself representative of the rebel armed forces of the presidency. Um, so essentially, he's the leader of like the military, and he's mm-hmm. like, let's peacefully do this transition. But he would go on to be appointed prime minister on February 16th, 1959. And that's where he stayed until his death? Uh, he changed the title around a few times, but it, I mean, don't, don't get it twisted. Castro was always in power. From this point moving forward. Yeah. Then that's why I that's I kind of want to end the episode here because like that's Castro is now the man. And the second he becomes prime minister, February 16th, 1959, Castro's the man. And honestly, before that, as soon as he started Caravana, was it was brilliant. It was a brilliant tour to get the people on his side to make sure that he would take the power when he got to Havana. Yeah. So even though everyone was there kind of vying for political position, um, it, it it all worked out for Castro. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's where I want to end it today. We have I I wanted to talk about more in this episode, but once again it just keeps stretching out. Um so I've pushed I've pushed some talk. I, I want to talk about how the world reacts to this. I want to talk about what the USA and the USSR were doing around this time. And we're gonna have to get into that later. Um really uh, it seems like the CIA might have helped out a little bit. Um USSR wasn't doing anything. And I will talk about the reasons for that next episode. But yeah, that is that is that is Castro in power. That's uh, that's the Cuban Revolution. That's part two in the bag. Um, you want to do some after notes? Yeah, and I actually have one that follows up uh, the last thing I was talking about. Pretty good. Uh, so the United States officially recognized Urrutia's new government a day later. Remember, that's the guy who just became president. Um, in a note to President Eisenhower. 
Uh, the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, wrote... Dulles. Dulles. He's the guy that the Air Force Base is named after. Oh, yeah, John Washington Foster. Dulles. Yeah. No. Okay. Oh, no. Yeah, there's a there's an airport named Dulles, isn't there? Washington Dulles? So, Secretary of State, John Forrester... Foster. Dulles. John Foster Dulles. So, this dude... Yeah. Right, this, this dude, guy, this this yeah. dude, this tells, dumbass Dulles. This dude Dulles. tells Eisenhower the provisional. Are you really gonna go with that? It's do Dulles. it again, you fucker. Okay, and a note to President Eisenhower. Secretary Don't sound of, like a dickhead. Just do it normal. Washington Dulles is the airport. In okay, I don't give a fuck. Okay, well, Jesus, this is getting one, confrontational. One of the one of the There's also Reagan. there's also Reagan. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, read your script. Read your Let's thing. finish this shit. In a note to President Eisenhower, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles wrote, The provisional government appears free from communist state, and there are indications that it intends to pursue friendly relations with the United States. I've got a communist taint for you. He's talking about Cuba. Like, the U.S. was like, oh yeah, they're, they're on our side. They're cool. They're not commies at all. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Oh. Big X. Yeah. And I got more, but do you, you have one you want to say? Uh, yeah, so as we talked about previously with, with Matthews, the, um, the New York Times writer who interviewed Castro and everything. Um, Castro later, and again, going back to the fact that a lot of misinformation was spread around after the fact. Castro said publicly that at the time that Matthews came to visit, he only had 12 people in his group, which... Most sources say he had 20, um, even after landing in Cuba. So he says he had 12, and that he had those 12 people just, that he had them marching, and no, he just he had didn't. them circle back so that it looked like he had more people, and they would just get to the back of the line and keep marching again and again. No. To, yes. Literally. I called it. Yes, you literally said that, and I'm like, hey, <laughs> but do you know? Do you know? Like, so he said that. I cannot believe it's true. I think there's a shred of truth in it. He also said while he was being interviewed, he had a man run. I think this is true. He had a man run in and say, sir, the second battalion has an urgent message for you when he didn't have a second battalion. <laughs> so, yeah, they really should have put me on the writer's board for the Cuban revolution. Seriously, like, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you would have killed it over there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that led to, and, and again, Matthews was a huge fan. So I, I honestly think that they didn't need to do anything. I think there's a shred of truth in that. But um, it sounds a little ridiculous. And obviously, Castro's going to take every opportunity to make it sound like an American was stupid and that he got one over on him, you know? Yeah. So. I, I don't I don't doubt it. I think, I, I think one of what you told me, what Matthew said, like, all of it was true. It was true. Um, the sizable force thing, I could see Castro doing it. Doesn't mean that you necessarily disrespect them, but, you know, he's... Castro's playing the strategy. Yeah. Castro is... He's a, he's a strategist. I mean, he knows how to play the game. And up to this point... Up, he's doing a good job. Up until this point, Castro is not a bad guy. Him and 20 guys took over a country. Yeah, pretty much. That's nuts. Well, you know, um, there's actually a Che Guevara book quote, and I've, I've not written this down. I know this off the top of my head. Um, but the uh, apple of revolution does not... Um, does not fall from the tree it must be plucked so essentially they had to just start it and yeah. when they started it was it was a power well, i mean it's not like it, they started it the, things were 
Thank there was a lot going. of unrest there. Like yeah. I said, there were pockets of it everywhere. It was them that brought it all together. Yeah, because they, made they it were organized. the best at it. They were supported by not the CIA. The CIA. Not <laughs> they the were CIA. supported by they the CIA. They were supported by not the CIA. And um, <laughs> they... It, honestly, like, Castro's just intelligent. Che Guevara is intelligent. Yes. Like, these aren't stupid people. Um, they they are honestly very impressive. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not. I'm not. They're impressive at this point. Now we'll get point. into why they suck later. Yeah. But yeah. At this point, they. I mean, they did it. Yeah, they did it, and they did a good job. So this is. I. I don't know. Is that your last? Is yeah, that, that's my last end. Okay. So my other end note, Frank Sturgis. So you know the one that wasn't a CIA employee. Definitely wink, not wink. a CIA. That wasn't CIA. Wink, 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 wink. wink. So he kept working with the CIA, um, you know, not not employed with them. Um, but he was actually, will probably invo- be involved in some of our future episodes. So some of the other things on his resume is he would go on to be accused of playing a part in the JFK assassination. Uh, he would eventually be arrested for being one of the burglars. Hold on, walk. hold on. What do you mean he played a part in the JFK assassination? He was accused of playing a part in the JFK okay. assassination. Sorry, I thought you were saying that he actually played a part. Like, I thought you were accusing I didn't. I miss you saying accused. So I thought he might have. Hey, he might have killed Kennedy. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean he might have. Uh, there's there's some evidence with. The, I didn't want to get into Jake. Well, well uh, we might. You know what? No. Way later. Mm-mm. Way 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 later. We might once we run out of ideas. We might do a JFK episode. Okay. Cool. Um. No, we won't. But anyways, <laughs> too much. And we'll have another seven-parter on JFK. So eventually, the other cool thing, uh, he was arrested for being one of the burglars in the Watergate scandal. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? I really think we're going to have to go redo our I think, episode I think we point. might have to have a full episode for Frank Sturgis. Okay. Like, eight. Super interesting. Other, now, forget about the Watergate scandal. It's not the most impressive. Uh, he also probably assassinated the Prime Minister of Portugal in 1980. Um... Before he went to Honduras in 1981 to train the U.S.-backed Contras in guerrilla warfare. What the? He didn't work for the CIA, though. He never... How? He never, he never, <laughs> okay, we, is there a book about this guy? I really I like... Him. Yeah, he's, he's super interesting. I want to okay. read about it. All right, okay. Because clearly he was a 1099. Okay. Yes, he's, 1099 a, he's a contractor. contractor. He's an assassin. You can hire him to kill Not JFK. Not an employee, though. Not an employee. No, he doesn't work for the CIA. Work for the CIA. Yeah. But you just call him up and say, "Hey, my buddy knows the ex uh, the ex president of Cuba." <laughs> just bump into him at the grocery store. Hi, I'm an assassin. <laughs> you know, I, I could use someone like you. Um, yeah, that's all I got for today. Okay, tell uh, me one. Where they no, can no, no. Us. Actually, okay. I, have one, I have one more thing. I will say this is a live recorded episode, or we all recorded it together. You know, of course, we're going to edit this before we put it out, so you like miss out on all of michael's burps and farts and stuff um but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh i will say uh since we i did write down here uh so that we could all be together for this one our close friend of the show Corey, came down here with me you cool with me using your last name Corey? so Corey beach uh he's been a real yeah, troop because we had nice. we had nothing for him to do so he just sat around and like was quiet while we did this podcast, which is really hard to do. Except he's board. flipping some shit. Stop. Yeah, it. now he's making you, a fucking do you noise. Want to say something on the podcast? Maybe. Maybe. Oh, no. This is an extremely sensitive. Mic. Give us a holler. Give, tell him, hey, Corey. That sh- plug, plug, plug your stuff. Plug something. My stuff. Yeah, I don't have stuff. All right, so plug now plug something. 
Watch something. Yeah, said, catch me be, this weekend. I, I'm going to be live this weekend at Zany's Open Mic Night. There catch you go. there. Yeah. See you guys there. <laughs> okay uh so now i'm going to tell you guys where you can find us because you've never listened to another episode before this one because this one's gonna hit number 199 on the british british documentary, documentary series thank you all of our british listeners you guys are the shit yeah i don't know why we're doing well there but that's nice um so you can shoot us an email if you want to talk to us podcast at i really wish you hadn't.com if you have anything to add, if you speak Spanish and you want to give us some insight, because we're real bad about this stuff. You can be on the show. Yeah, you can be on the show. I will bring you on just to say we have someone who speaks Spanish. Yes. I will ask you before the episode how to pronounce everything. I will personally call you and I'll be ecstatic about it. Also, go ahead and follow us on Instagram. It's at I-R-W-Y. No, it's at I really wish you hadn't on Instagram. Michael, don't get upset. I didn't type it this time. Uh, <laughs> and then... You can follow us on Twitter at IRWYH Podcast. I really wish you hadn't. It's hosted by me, Michael Bentley, and Kevin McMahon. We are produced by Colin Moore. Intro and outro music by Attack Story. Our cover art is by Nickator. Please remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't swim the Rio Grande with $100,000. Like, just wire the money. And as always, don't do anything I wouldn't. Our